You are now listening to The Shyest Podcast, when millions of opinions just aren't enough. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Scheist Podcast. My guest today is an old college friend, and she's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Realist Woman, Aquila Bogan. Thank you for coming and being a guest on the show. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, I guess the most pressing issue in the States right now, at least news-wise, is the abortion ban that went into place in Texas. And I just read this morning that uh, the Justice Department is suing Texas now to get some sort of injunction in place. But I don't know. Give me your initial thoughts on that. So I um, have been lucky enough to meet amazing, um, you know, businesswomen and, and you know, um, entrepreneurs on Instagram. And um, I spoke with one last week when when the news kind of first hit and, you know, she was, you know, expressing to me that she was enraged, you know, and I've, you know, having four years of Trump, eight years of Bush, <laughs> um, I, I know what that that feels like. And, and I'm I'm enraged, too, because it's so preposterous. But at the same time. I'm so not surprised. Um, you know, this is just like, you know, you take in, I think political science, I take in political science, like you just kind of know the game, how it's played. Cause it's a game. Unfortunately, it's not supposed to be a game, but it is to them. It is. And by them, I mean, politicians on both sides, but uh, it's really always the Republicans driving this particular issue. Um, I wasn't surprised. I just kind of thought this is not going to stick. I can't imagine this sticking. Yes, they can do things temporarily. And I know what kind of Supreme Court we have right now. But even with that, I just can't. I just will never believe that America will allow this for long you know it's just it's always going to be a fight it's never not going to be um but i i wasn't surprised and i just thought well <laughs> here comes the lawyers fighting this because they're going to fight it and i believe they're going to win but it's just a fight that's just going to continue forever yeah i mean in my gut i'm with you that i don't think America will, you know, be able to tolerate this for long, right? I think it's not in the best interest of the country long term. And I think that will eventually win out because there's enough women that have voices that are willing to use them to where this is going to be a problem. Um, I'm just curious because we saw that the whole strategy was to basically get these particular conservative judges on the Supreme Court. And it seems like a lot of, I don't know, the foundation for wanting 
to put the abortion ban in place is coming from, I don't know, kind of like religious zealotry. And I mean, you consider you are a Christian woman, right? I am. I, you know, I, I say that sometimes with ease and then sometimes I don't, I don't, I don't really always know what that means anymore. Um, I call myself a Jesus follower <laughs> because that feels, it just feels more doable than Christian. Christian feels like to say that you're a Christian, for me, to say that I'm a Christian feels like I'm in a box and I have to be perfect. And then I'm going to constantly feel guilty because I'm not. And being a Jesus follower feels like I can be fully human. Um, I don't go after things like I don't try to sin on purpose, <laughs> but I'm fully forgiven if I do and when I do, which is every day. Um, but yeah, uh, they use religion as their excuse. Okay. Um, I mean, I thought there was supposed to be separation of church and states because that is, this is always um, their basis for pushing this particular, um, you know, movement, but it's really not. It's just, you know, women are making gains. And what does that mean for men? What does that mean for white men? What does that mean for men in power? If women are making gains, if women are becoming, you know, more and more CEOs, they're in Congress more and more. They're in the Senate. My God, they almost had a presidency. What does that mean for, I really think it's like a deeper psychological thing. I know that they say it's religious. It's not because they're not really religious. They don't walk around loving people. That's not what they do. That's how I know that they're not, you know, serious about what they say in terms of, you know, who they are, they're Christians or whatever. You know, this is really, it, it's like a, it, there's, it's like a fear of, being equal with women. So what can we do to keep them down? I don't have any <laughs> proof or evidence of that, but I I just feel like this is an identity crisis for men. I really do. It start it did start off as like a power play, you know, um Jerry Falwell, the former you know, preacher, I guess, mm -hmm. from the 70s and 80s he was very big he kind of had this coalition of like you know um religion and politics kind of come together after roe v wade um so they've been very very powerful um in you know getting people on board to this particular party the republican party um the republican party and the christian right are, are you know are are hand in hand um so and it, it just, it never, it never was about religion. It was always about a power play. And it was always about keeping women in their place um, as they see fit. I just, I think it's a deeper psychological thing to be honest with you. It's an identity crisis for men. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm with you there because, you know, I spent, you know, four years in Lutheran school before high school. And then I went to a Catholic high school after that. So I read a lot of the Bible and, what I see from like this, like whatever it is, this conservative religious movement is that like, this is not the way that 
Jesus would behave in this situation. Like if you read the Bible enough, like that's not the kind of person that he's painted to be. So you can't fall back on the Bible and on religion as your foundation for this particular cause or whatever it is. Um, and it has to be, like you said, rooted in control measures for men exerting their power over women because this same group is always very critical of single mothers taking advantage of the welfare state, right? So how can you on one hand say that this is a problem, yet we're going to then force people into single motherhood so that they can then continue the problem that we're pointing out. And at the same time, there's all these different kinds of birth control out there that could benefit people long before it gets to the point of even getting to uh, having to use an abortion clinic. So if it was really about abortions, it would never come down to just like, oh, well, it's God's will to force you to have this baby. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. Um, this is, you know, it's it's just, it's getting old. <laughs> I'm like, how much longer are we going to have to, like, you know, fight this nonsense? Um, but it, it just really is, um, I don't know. I try to, like, the good thing about this, right? Because you're like, what the hell is good about this? The good thing about this is if it lights a fire under our asses. You know, Joe Biden has been president <laughs> for what's what month are we in? Nine? Yeah. Um, I, have to, I have to be honest, you know, I'm a person who obviously like keeps up with the world. I love the news. That's why I got into journalism. But but I I didn't know what he was doing out of so I was like, what's Biden doing? Like I didn't know what he was up to at a certain point because it just it wasn't the circus. It's not the circus that Trump's presidency was. Um, so I just, you know, you get comfortable really fast when you just don't have this threatening figure in the executive office. But being comfortable is dangerous because everything doesn't happen from the executive office. It usually happens at a local level, a regional level, a state level. And that's what Texas has showed us, you know, um, and, and Florida, possibly. And I heard the governor of South Dakota, you know, she wants to kind of get on board with banning um, abortion meds. And, you know, I mean, and I expected this. I expected this domino effect of like these conservative governors and states wanting to follow in the footsteps of Texas. Um, so... It's just, you know, it's just what they do. It's what they do. And yet I always feel like, why aren't we more prepared for this? Because they don't change. They do the same things over and over, you know. And, you know, the crazy thing about this is the Texas ban is they're not saying you can't get an abortion. They're saying you can't get one after six weeks. You know, <laughs> like they're, they're really, I mean, they're re-strategizing all the time. It really is this like chess game, you know, and it never freaking ends. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, 
I'm not a woman, but my whole family is women. I have five sisters. So I want them to have the best possible like decision-making tools for their lives. And I don't think it's ever my decision to make in that situation. So I will always defer to the person who's carrying the child. And at least in my understanding, the, the problem with it being a six week ban is that that's realistically like two weeks after the first missed period. So it's very early in the curve of when the, a normal woman would recognize that she's late on her period and possibly pregnant. So it puts so many more people than you would think just by calling it like six weeks. It puts a lot more people in danger way earlier in the curve. Oh, 100%. I mean, they knew what they were doing. They know that women don't know. Most women don't know. Um, yeah, the women I've known, they, I mean, maybe, I think the earliest I've heard of somebody knowing was like five and a half weeks because they're on their, you know, they knew their cycle. But usually, I mean, but I've heard of women who don't know for months, you know, <laughs> like I know them. And it's just so... It's just evil, you know? And I, I think what is missing though, just in terms of women's rights in general, I think we do need men. I think we do need men who, who are also, you know, in agreement with us and are fighting for our rights, you know? You know, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and that's something that a lot of these conservative men kind of struggle with or have, who think they, you know, they think they benefited from like this kind of, you know, macho identity, but it's actually hurt men, you know, um, that has hurt men just as much as, well, I don't know, just as much, but it's hurt women and it's hurt men. And there are so many men who, you know, believe in a woman's right to choose because women don't get pregnant on their own, you know, like, you know, it takes two. So I just, you know, I really would love it if men would join in on the, and not that they haven't, but I would just like to see a lot more men join in on the women's marches. I think there's going to be one next month um, regarding that situation. Um, I just would like to see more men speak out because if they have these same um, feelings and, and beliefs as women do about their rights, my God, it just it it just helps the the movement, you know, to push back against these men who are just plain wrong. Um, so I just I do think we need men's voices um, because all we're hearing when it comes to men on abortion is, you know women shouldn't have the right to choose. We need to hear those men who believe that women should have the right yeah, to choose. Yeah, I mean, that's typically coming from, you know, the loud opponents of a woman's right to choose, and they <laughs> stay loud for a long time. And, you know, I'm probably guilty of it myself where I should be a more vocal ally. And, I mean, I don't have a huge platform, but, you know, I do have sisters and I do value their lives and their ability to choose what they want to do with their bodies. So I will make a more concerted effort to do what I can. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, I mean, 
reproductive rights are just basically human rights, you know, and 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 just women just benefit. Oh my God. It's like, we can go into this. We can talk about this for like hours and hours, how women benefit from reproductive rights, you know, all around the world, they benefit financially, you know, it, it can change their life forever if they're able to plan their own parenthood. <laughs> so, um, instead of, you know, having to be forced to have a child and then deal with the consequences, the financial consequences of that, because that's, that plays a role. You know, you have entire couples who, definitely use birth control because they're like, okay, we're, you know, when we're ready, when we feel like we have a home, when we feel, you know, you want to be financially prepared for a child, you know, preferably, and people should have that right. Women should have that right. So. A hundred percent. And they should have protections from like state, local, federal government on the back end of that pregnancy as well. Post-pregnancy leave from jobs, like for, for men too. I mean, we had a teacher, in high school that I don't think he ended up suing the school, but he basically forced their hand into allowing him to take maternity leave with his wife so that they could be there together. And I mean, I'll bring it back a little bit full circle to Larry Elder, who has been vocal in the past about basically, you know, pregnancy discrimination against women in the workplace and that the market should set the value because he's a, you know, a free market mm-hmm. capitalist. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, those are the kind of things that we could potentially be looking at in California, which, you know, I didn't think we would see it in California, but a lot of California is still Republican. It's not just like this entirely blue state. I mean, I, I remember looking at, I don't know if it was the last election that I looked really deeply into the numbers, but I think the first year that Trump won, it was like five and a half to like three and a half million. So that's three and a half million Republicans in California that like want to turn the state red. So California is typically looked at as a very, you know, liberal state, but it's not that far away from potentially changing. I mean, you're you're right, you know. There, there are plenty of Republicans in California. We know where they live. <laughs> San Diego, Orange County, <laughs> I think um, Central California. You know, like they, I know where they live. Um, I know where they congregate. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. I, you know, I, I want to say that Democrats are, do you curse on this? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Well, I just, I just think Democrats... <laughs> have been and are full of shit. I mean, they don't mind, you know, dropping bombs on, you know, I don't know, Kabul or whatever. Um, but, you know, they'll slap a rainbow sticker on their arm and call themselves liberal. You know, I just, I think that Democrats, even the Democrats in California these days are more corporate. They're more business. They're more about money. That's not that's not what the Democrats are supposed to be representing. They're not supposed to be representing like, you know, profit over people. Um, so yeah, maybe, you know, I, I look at like the Bay area and, you know, I mean, this is all over the country, but in California up and down, we've had a homeless problem, you know, and San Francisco, the Bay area is supposed to be the most liberal 
place in all of California, and yet they have not really been able to figure out um, solutions for the homeless um, in those areas up there. Um, they're, it's a little cold when it comes to helping these people. And I just think, you know, this is not, this is not the San Francisco it used to be. It's very tech. It's very rich. <laughs> um, it's, it's more corporate. Um, it's, it's just not, you know, if you think San Francisco is hippies and, and, you know, like, I don't know what people think, think it is. It's not. Um, so that wouldn't really surprise me to see California turn red one day because I don't even think Democrats are really Democrats. You know, I really don't. Yeah. I mean, we had Republican governor not that long ago, a couple of them within our lifetimes. We've had at least three. Right. We don't know what the hell we want in a governor. That's, I mean, this is all, this is like what we do. We want to recall a governor every 10 seconds, you know, like it's, it's insane. Um, it's hard to please, you know, 35, 40 million people that live in very different situations all the time. But like, I think Newsom has done, like you said, the best he could under the circumstances. Like he's getting his feet held to the fire a lot for the French laundry incident, which it's like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And it makes you look like a hypocrite. But aside from that, like I would prefer you to err on the side of caution so that we don't end up like... Florida and the Southeast is looking right now where COVID cases are in like the tens of thousands per day. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want that here. And I don't want mask mandates repealed. I want people to actually just listen to the ones that are currently in place. That would be nice. I don't like going to the gym and seeing, you know, the chin diaper thing going on. So I think, yeah. I think we have to at least err on the side of caution for now, even if, you know, Newsom is not the kind of governor that like works for all Californians, like I think he's definitely the best solution at the moment. I, I think we need to learn how to work with what we have. <laughs> for sure. Um, but, you know, that's just not that's just not <laughs> if we don't like something, we get rid of it. That can be a governor, a relationship, um, a friendship. (laughs) Just move on to the next. You know, that's just what we do as a culture. Like, we don't stick with anything um, when it gets hard. Uh, You know, and I think he'll be fine in this election, I hope. I I think I saw something about, like, 70% of people hadn't turned in their ballots or something like that, their mail-in ballots. And it was like, you know, I think I saw... um, Oh God, what's his name? He used to work for Clinton. Um, he's a short man. He's older. Oh gosh, I forgot his name. It escapes me. But I I follow him on on Instagram, and he you know put that fact on his page, and I was like, oh my God, you know, like I knew I was leaving to Virginia, and I was going to be gone during the election, so I made sure to get my you know fill it out, and you know sign it, get it in the envelope. And my mom dropped it off for me <laughs> um, because it's important. You know, it's important. What are we doing? Just because it's not a presidential election doesn't mean it's not important. You know, this is the this is the thing. This is our state. This is where we live. Like, uh, if only we gave a damn about you know, state, regional, local issues the way we sort of come together for the presidency. Yeah, we, we I, let that off. 
my theory with civic duty is that when we're coming up through school, our most familiar experience with an election is for student body president, right? Or class president. And nothing changes. It's like a popularity contest. This person wins like, oh, you're going to get me like an apple in the vending machine or you're going to you're going to try and get me this particular <laughs> type of thing allowed for prom or I don't know. Like it just becomes this experience that like we have to go through, but nothing happens. And then so by the time you get out of high school and you're finally like old enough to vote, you're not the most inspired most of the time to just be like, oh, yeah, I really want to vote in my like state, city, local elections because of all the different things. It's going to change because they don't teach civics in school the way they used to. Right. And I think that's a big problem in participation. It's like a big part of being a American citizen is the ability and the responsibility to participate in these kinds of things. And by devaluing it, it's only made it easier for both sides of the political spectrum to manipulate what's left. Oh, yeah. We're in a sad, sad state right now. <laughs> People have no critical thinking skills. Um, our media is irresponsible. Um, I mean, we don't know the most basic things. Um, you know, you can I mean, it's you know, if you if you're watching Jimmy Kimmel, and he's, you know, has his man on the street kind of segment. And he's asking people really basic questions about our government. People don't know. And I'm not saying they're supposed to know everything. You know, everybody doesn't take political science. Everybody doesn't care. People are, you know, struggling to survive. You know, we've had a pandemic. Like, you know, they're just doing the best they can. But um, to not know our, you know, three branches of government. I mean, that just tells you, you know, we just, we're not, I mean, I, I just, we're in a sad state right now. Yeah, because it's like, okay, I have to eat, I have to work, I have to like enjoy myself a little bit after putting in that effort. And then I need to rest. And there's not really time in that particular cycle to educate yourself on state and local measures to get in touch with like your neighborhood city council, to know your representatives uh, in state assembly and the Senate. So I get it. It's a lot of work. But like if we don't ingrain that before you get to the point where you're at like consumerism method of adulthood, then it's not going to stick. Yeah. It's hard to get it back. And that's why I think both sides go for the kind of like outlandish kind of headlines that really make you angry. Because once you get angry about something, you're like, yeah, that's a cause I believe in. So now I'm going to like really get invested right now. And I have a friend that is very conservative, but like in the entire time I knew him, he was never political at all. I couldn't have told you that he was conservative other than like Irish Catholic. So I'm like, okay, maybe a little bit, but all of a sudden it's like maintaining these friendships. Like at this time, my sisters, my younger sisters are just like, why do you like talk to these people? Like, why do you maintain these friendships? And for me, I'm like, you know, I've had a lot of friends for 20 plus years at this point. And for me, like those are valuable regardless of this person's political affiliation. And I don't hang out with this person. And like, that's not really the kind of relationship we have anymore. But it's like, I still want this person to be able to like have a good life and be happy. And like all the things I want for all other people, Yeah, you know, so what you talked about kind of like the disposability culture of where if like if something gets difficult we just cut it off 
And I like that has become a lot more popular because it does take a certain level of energy to budget for those kind of relationships. And my girlfriend often tells me, she's like, you're way too nice and like too patient. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, I've known these people for so long that I'm not just going to like throw it away because we disagree about this. I'd rather be able to have a conversation where they can air their side and like get it off their chest, whatever it is that's bothering them. And I can have my say. And if we don't agree, we don't agree, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like we can't get along. It doesn't mean that we don't agree on everything either. It's like we may disagree on this one thing, but have a lot more in common that we both want to see happen for, you know, our family, our friends, our state, whatever. So it, it does get difficult. And I think we've been intentionally divided. So that way it's harder to cross that aisle and find a middle ground. Oh, yeah, they want us divided for sure. But, you know, I do have to say, like, I, sometimes I do think it's, you know, not the worst thing to step away from a situation where, you know, um, you know, for me these days, there's just certain things I can't tolerate. I actually have standards now. I've never really had standards in friendships, but, um, you know, I, after everything that happened during George Floyd and after to have some of the closest people in my life, not understand, I mean, you don't have, you know, if you're not black, you're not black, you know, <laughs> like you're not going to completely understand my experience, but to dismiss it or belittle it is a problem for me um, because lives are really at risk. You know, I shouldn't be afraid that my brother's going to go to Target. Him going to Target should be not even a thought for me. But is he going to go to Target and mind his own business and be able to shop and leave and go home safely? I don't know. And it's not because of his behavior. It's because of what we've allowed in this society when it comes to white women. Um, as you know, we've lovingly have called them Karens. We, you know, which are just basically entitled white ladies. Um, we've allowed, you know, uh, police, and I'm not a person who believes all police are bad, far from it, but we've allowed too many to do what they've done and continue to do today. Um, you know, literally since the slave patrols, they've always been after us. And if that is not something that you can understand, I'm not sure that I really want to have a friendship with you because one day I'm going to have a kid. And I have a niece, you know, right now, like I, I just had a baby niece this summer and she is so perfect and amazing. But by the time she is about, I don't know, 10 years old, she's not going to be looked at as a child, you know, um, they basically, um, you know, look at our 10 year old, uh, black girls and black boys as adults. They treat them like that, you know, in the school systems and whatnot. Um, she's not going to be looked at as a little precious child, you know? I don't want, I just need the people in my life to understand the the all of the possible horrible things that she could go through, you know? Um, again, I'm going to have a kid one day. I need them to understand what this world looks like for my kid. 
doesn't matter who I marry, doesn't matter who I have a kid with. My I'm black. My kid is black, you know. And if you can't just, you know, try to understand, um, yeah, just even try to understand. Just even give me that much. I really don't want to have anything to do with you because you are dangerous to me. You are dangerous to my future. You are dangerous to my children and my children's children. To me, it's, I mean, it's literally that serious. And I, and I do think we take politics and we take all these issues so seriously. We look at a Republican and go, you're evil, a Democrat, you're evil. And it's not that at all. And I, you know, and I hate if I've ever kind of thought of a Republican as evil. I do think, and I think I used that word just maybe like 20 minutes ago <laughs> doing when it comes to abortion. But yeah, when it comes to policy and, and trying to strip women of autonomy, I do think that's an evil move. You know, I really do. Um, doesn't necessarily mean the person who's doing it is evil, but, you know, I, I don't know. But, you know, we are very extreme these days. But when it comes to racial issues after George Floyd, oh, it changed for me. So I don't think people are disposable. I don't want to look at it like that. I just think you move on. I think you move where you need to move um, for your own wellness, for your own mental wellness, for your own health, your own emotional health, your own growth, you know, and maybe they'll grow, you know? Um, yeah, I, I mean, we are very extreme and we do dispose, but I think when it comes to certain issues, you know, you have to have standards because these are life and death issues. And, you know, coming back to abortion, you know, abortions will never stop happening. It's just safe ones will if women's, you know, if this is stripped of, you know, if women's autonomy over their bodies is stripped away from them, you know, from us. Um we could die having a botched abortion. We could die taking some pill. We don't know where it came from, you know, like trying to get, trying to terminate a pregnancy, like, mm -hmm. and that's not what we want. And I think that a real person who followed Christ or just a person with a heart and who wants the best for people would want what's best for a woman who was a human being. Forget about them being a woman. Are they a human being? And, and, and I think that's what it comes down to. They don't really see us as their equal. You know, we are just not equal, period. That's what it is. They have to, in order for them to stay high, we have to stay low. And that's just what it is. And I agree with you 100%, especially when it comes to like your personal boundaries um, in, in talking about like getting rid of some of those like toxic type of relationships in your life, like a hundred percent because mental health has taken like a huge hit over the last 18 months. And I'm a huge proponent of looking out for yourself. And I mean, throughout my own time in therapy, it was just like, for me, it was about like setting boundaries, like learning boundaries. So it's like, I have like a different classifications for like friends that I'm like very close to friends that I have known for a long time, like friends that I'm f acquaintances with basically, and then acquaintances who I'm more friendly with. And so it's, it's hard to set those like soft boundaries, especially with the kind of issues you were talking about. And so like definitely prioritize your own mental well-being, your own physical well-being and your own quality of life over placating somebody 
to stay in a a soft friendship with them. Yeah, it's apple. It's just, I mean, I'm 36. I can't even believe I'm saying that. It's messed up, but you know, <laughs> life is just, you know, too. It is just too short. I just in in time we never get back. You know, <laughs> we just don't. Time is so valuable, and I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. Time is so valuable, and I, you know. You, look, you, you you go to therapy. I've had my kind of, you know, therapy experience myself this year where I've kind of woken up to myself and just kind of realized, you know, in relationships, I wasn't honoring myself. And I, I do have to credit, um, obviously out of a horrific situation comes so many um, amazing things. Um, I think that for me, um, what came out of the George Floyd situation, the murder, um, I mean, with so many things, a book that I, you know, hope to God to release sometime in the next year, um, maybe a little later, but we'll see, has come out of it. And that came from, like, being in the trenches of just this depression that I've never had. Um, because I realized my country just could give two shits about me. And what does that mean? Um, you know, and I'm the kind of person who wants to run away, but run away where, you know, because this is everywhere. <laughs> this is all over the world. Um, but I just, I say this to say, you know, I've learned that we need to honor ourselves. And if it wasn't for that situation, I would have never been on a journey to even like connecting with myself, to understanding that I never really had standards in my relationship, to, to really understanding how codependent my relationships were, where that came from, the root, of, or the root of that, abandonment issues, you know, how that shaped and molded most of my relationships. Um, so if it, I mean, I feel like George Floyd was the catalyst for so many opportunities to grow, to learn and to grow. And, you know, it, if it wasn't for that situation, I would still probably be in some of those toxic relationships because I just wouldn't have been aware. Um, but in that level of discomfort, something had to change. You know, if I was going to keep going, something had to give. And um, that's what, that's one of the things, one of the amazing things that I'm so grateful um, to have come to realize from that horrific, horrific situation. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad for you. I'm happy for you because, yeah. I mean, realistically, like, just even the process of going to therapy has been something that hasn't been available to Black women and Black people in America. I mean, yeah. It's the truth. It's only happened more recently as there's been more of a push for like all mental health awareness. But I mean, like as a white man, realistically, I have so few problems that I have the opportunity to do a lot of introspection and actually realize like, oh, doing something like therapy is a huge privilege for me because like I don't have to worry about so many other things that I can actually like focus on this particular task. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I mean, I feel like I'm seeing it, you're seeing it. I'm seeing a lot more therapists of color or I'm, yeah. I'm being more aware 
I'm, you know, they're being highlighted to me. They're being, you know, pointed out to me, like, because we need that, you know, we need someone who understands us <laughs> when we're talking about our traumas or whatever, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like that has come out of that situation as well. And I'm grateful for it. Um, because it's, it's, I just really think we've suppressed so much of our traumas as like just people in general. And then like, you know, you break it down, like women, you know, have suppressed their traumas. Yeah. You know, uh, black women have suppressed their traumas. Black men have, you know, gay uh, men have, you know, like it's just, you know, we become so disconnected. We do need help kind of being guided to find the answers that have always been there. Um, and therapy really helps with that. But to, to have this like slew of diversity within the therapy world and, you know, have that be like kind of a focal point these days is, uh, is, is really, really wonderful. That means a lot more people can, you know, um, be seen and get help. And I know everybody can't afford it. You know, there are sliding scale therapies and, you know, there are, there's actually a program um, at USC that was offering um, free therapy for um, residents of California um, through um, uh, online, online, um, like kind of tele- telehealth um, therapy um, that I learned about last year. That was really amazing. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it is a privilege, but there, you know, I, you know, and here we have to kind of talk about the healthcare, <laughs> the healthcare system, because I feel like we're not, you know, we go in for a physical, but do we go in for a mental health check? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, we, there's just, I mean, we have no access really, you know, we have no true access. People don't have true access to this kind of stuff. So we just walk around in pain and acting out in that pain and never really evolving. Yeah. And I mean, like what you said about trauma, like you hit it on the head, like trauma is at the center of so many different like mental health issues. And, you know, when I say mental health, I'm not talking necessarily about mental illness, like they're different things. And in talking about them with like certain groups, they the kind of like lump them together like if you say someone like doesn't have mental health like you're calling them mentally ill which isn't necessarily the case but um my girlfriend is the practice director of uh a women run woman run uh psychology private practice that's grown and they're starting to expand in some other states and kaiser has been surprisingly good um because they started covering copays uh for tele therapy because they just can't like deal with it like the infrastructure for kaiser is not meant to deal with this many people seeking therapy so they were able to basically like you know sign some associate contracts out um so if you have kaiser and you're looking for it like it is available and a lot of the time like you know when i'm on twitter like i see a lot of people that are dealing with like their mental health issues and some people are more open about talking about it some aren't so when i have the opportunity i'm like look i can maybe help you if you really want it so just like send me a message and i'll see if i can you know get you in touch with someone who can actually help you because i do value mental health and i do think therapy is probably good for the entire population just to have someone that you can talk to who's a professional that can give you some tools to work through some things. Yeah. 
And like, no matter like, you know, if it's me, if it's someone on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, like there is a benefit to therapy if you can take the time and have the access to it, like you said. Right. Yeah. I wish we had politicians that gave a damn. I mean, we had Bernie, but you know, (laughs) they they want Bernie. So there was that. Uh, I know. And he kind of got like froze out of the current administration. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh they yeah, because they don't you're a disruptor for too long, sir. Step aside. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, we're seeing younger and younger politicians. And I mean, even when I was watching, I think the the first democratic debates for the presidency. And I was like, you know what? I actually like all the younger candidates a lot more. I mean I'm I'm glad that more people are willing to talk about uh, like Castro was the only one up there talking about uh, police brutality, like well before, like we saw everything like explode all over the national news. Um, So I think the future is good or at least it's bright, but there has to be a disconnect between like the old guard that's realistically moderates and the new guard that want to be more progressive. And then we could see things like more universal access to healthcare, more acceptance of mental health as a building block for regular health. (laughs) Like they're connected, connected. stress is a huge killer. So if you can't, if you're mentally unwell, not necessarily mentally ill again, but if your mental health is in the toilet, like that's going to affect every other aspect of your life. And so first acknowledging that that's realistic and two, putting uh, systems in place where you can at least aim to tackle some of that without it being a stigma of like, you went to see a therapist, like you're crazy, right? So that was a huge stigma for a long time before therapy really started to become popular more so within the last like decade. Mm hmm. Yeah, I was reading this. Oh, this book called Anxious for Nothing by Max Licato, and it is a book that's based on um, uh, the book of Philippians talking about the, and the book is basically talking about anxiety. And he kind of introduces the book with like a lot of facts about um, anxiety in America. And he said something like, um, we lose like, I don't even know how many millions of dollars in productivity because of anxiety. Like we literally lose out in people being able to do their best um, at work and produce for our economy because they are not mentally well. Um And I think that that, I mean, I looked at that and I was like, wow, I didn't even, you know, realize it was that because some people can, you know, they can, they can fake it until they make it, you know, they can go to work and, you know, their life is, you know, in shambles and make it seem like everything is great and they can, you know, do their jobs. But a lot of us can't. I know I can't. I cannot, I cannot do it. I cannot produce if I am not well. I cannot produce consistently. I cannot produce um, to the extent that I want to produce, um, I can't do it. Um, if I'm not taking care of me. Um, so, you know, if, if, 
you know, our politicians kind of looked at how much money we're losing because <laughs> they care about money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe then they would, you know, want all of us have access to uh, therapy or some kind of counselor or something like that, you know. Um, Maybe then. But again, they just they don't look at things in the long term. You know, they kind of they kind of look at things in the short term. So um, if it's not benefiting us this year, but 10 years from now, it's not going to work, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, it's, um, it's surprisingly hard to, like, sell people on that, which I think, you know, is one of the biggest hurdles with tackling climate change is that, like, these are, like, incremental changes that are going to happen over time. And so, like, maybe it's not going to be the end of the world, like, today. But, you know, 10, 20 years from now, if we don't make some changes, things are going to get really bad. And one of the things that I want politicians to do is to like curve the conversation away from like saving the planet, right? The planet's 4 billion years old. It's been hit by meteors and vol giant volcanoes. And, you know, there's been life on the planet for a long time. Yeah. We, need, we need to curve the conversation back towards these decisions regarding climate change and preventative measures and maybe corrective measures are designed to save the people that live on the planet, you know, yeah. um, because we're seeing yeah. like, the crazy flooding in New York right now, like wildfire yeah. season in California is right around the corner where it's like, hey, every year California just is on fire for three months and the air quality is terrible and we don't right. have the infrastructure to deal with it. And I'm, I'm sure it's still going to burn this year. I'm sure nothing has changed. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. I mean, the, you know, I, that, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a climate, whole nother show. <laughs> I mean, oh man. I mean, I guess we, do we have an administration that cares? I guess we do ish. Um, but man, you know, the thing about it is we have many, many authoritative figures in office in many States <laughs> who don't care about a damn thing. Um, ugh. They they just don't care. They don't care about our air quality. <laughs> they don't care about our water. Did Flint ever, <laughs> whatever happened to Flint? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we've had some historic fires. I had a friend in Oklahoma. She was in Tulsa. There was a fire... Oh, I think San Diego area, something like that. Inland Empire, or something, I don't know, something like that. The smoke went to Tulsa. Oh my goodness. I'm like, are you, she's like, that's smoke from California. We have fires that go to, you know, the smoke goes to Canada. And then, you know, it goes over to Europe. Like, it's insane. These are, what? It doesn't sound real. Sounds it doesn't, like it doesn't look real when we watch it on the news. It's just like, oh my goodness, like the entire state is on fire. I yeah. I mistake or I stupidly downloaded the California fire tracker. And oh, so, yeah, even when it's not fire season, oh, like God. there's fires everywhere. I'm like, okay, so even when it's, you know, spring, the whole state has fires. And then everything dries yeah. out after summer and it's just all yeah. kindling. You can't, you, you literally... 2019, summer 2019, I think it was August, I went to, you know, couldn't go anywhere. So I drove up to Northern California to see my cousin and a couple of friends. 
I mean, I took the one-on-one. It wasn't as bad because it was pandemic traffic, blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, no, it wasn't. Pan- was, it was 2020. Sorry, not 2019, 2020, obviously. <laughs> August okay. 2020. And literally, I was. I wanted to turn around. I wanted to go back home. I couldn't see in front of me. It was. It was smoke, like, all the way there. All the way there. Because it was along the coast around that time. And it was, you know, um, oh my God, it was like in Santa Cruz. And it was, I mean, it was insane. And so I drove up in smoke, spent my weekend in smoke, thought I'd take the five down so I could just get back as fast as I could. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was just, my eyes were burning both ways. It was just, I could not escape it. You know, and I mean, up and down this damn state, really? Yes, it was happening and it happens and it keeps happening. And it's, you know, it's not going to stop happening. You know, our climate is, you know, getting warmer, hotter all the time. And we're always in a drought, you know, like we're always dry. We never have enough moisture, rain. Um, our current comes from the freaking Arctic, you know, but our water is getting warmer and we're seeing sharks here and there where we really didn't before. Like, it's just, things are changing and changing for the worse. And if there's any state that kind of does give a damn about climate change, it is California. But at the same time, again, we just, there's just not enough politicians who care. There's just not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. We're not doing enough. Um, I mean, something as simple as like recycling, we don't have that down, but how come there are countries in Europe who do, you know, like it, it just, and I think it's a cultural thing, you know, we just, we're just not, we're not a culture that cares. No, we're a culture of excess and waste for sure. I mean, we have more, more food waste than any other, you know, country in the world. And that's something that I really hate a lot is where it's like, even when I'm full and like, I don't want to eat. It's like, if there's leftover food, like, I feel bad. I, I'm like, all right, I'll eat it because it's like that food going mm-hmm. in the trash. Like, I just can't stand food waste, so. I know. Well, mm-hmm. I, pr- I probably should have asked you this at the beginning of the show. I mean, I read, I looked at the website and I was uh, reading, like, I guess it's the bio of, like, why you started it. But, I mean, can you tell me what was the catalyst that made you want to be like, all right, I'm going to start a blog? Because you uh written for some media outlets and uh yeah. in dc right washington yeah in the like dc northern virginia area yeah. um i wrote for like the business community there the government contracts um acquisitions mergers kind of the business stuff i did write a little bit of like tech stuff which i really liked i was really into that which i was like shocked at and um i would kind of break down like you know, I don't know, some briefings from like, I don't know, something the FBI, you know, uh, released for the public or what, I don't know. I, I did, I did a few things, but um, what, yeah, catapulted me to starting The Realist Woman was the um, 2014 um, kidnapping of the uh, Chabak schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram. Um, it was a very big story. Anytime I mention it, people remember it. People remember those girls getting kidnapped, but they don't really remember what happened after. 
And I just thought it was such an urgent story. And it did get a lot of attention, but it died really fast, you know? And that, I don't know, that just really hurt me. Um, not because I'm a mom, um, not because I'm Nigerian, <laughs> but because I can't imagine being a mom, sending my kid to school, and then possibly never seeing them again because they were kidnapped by an extremist, you know, terrorist, terrorist group. Um, and, and not really having the world collectively come together with, I mean, resources to come and help, you know, because the Nigerian government didn't do what they were supposed to do and going after, you know, that group. Um, they had a, a terrible president who could give two shits. Um, I think one of our politicians here, um, oh my God, I forget her name. Um, she's, she's a black congresswoman from Florida. She wears like cowboy hats. <laughs> I forgot her name, but you can't miss her. She's great. She could, I remember she like, I read she confronted him at like a, you know, a state kind of dinner or something like that. And he had nothing to say, but um, yeah, I just, I mean, Obama was president at the time and I thought, okay, well, you know, we, we can send troops everywhere. You know, we, we are everywhere, literally. We're every damn where in the world. Why don't you go and get some drones and send some troops and go after these people because time is of the essence, you know? They're going to get deeper and deeper into whatever forest they're going into and they know where they're going, you know? We have to, you know, find these girls. And that did not happen. Um, the world did not really send the resources they could have. The story kind of died. It didn't mean that journalists weren't covering it. It just didn't really make, you know, headline news anymore. And I get that. That's the nature of news. Everything is not going to be, um, you know, headline news every night. But I just kind of felt like if there are any, if there's anything in this world, it's parents. Like, you know, how many people in this world are parents? And how many people who are parents are horrified at the thought of their kid getting kidnapped by some motherfuckers who don't believe that girls should go to school and whatever the hell, you know? Like, I just, I was horrified at the situation. I was horrified at the media's treatment of it or lack of attention on it. And I wanted my site not to be a site that has like, you know, um, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't have to be first, you know? My site doesn't have to be first in getting a new story. I kind of wait a little bit. I kind of want stories that have been forgotten about and that need a second look, you know? And particularly stories on women and girls. I do feel like, you know, their voices get drowned out. Their stories get drowned out. And I just wanted a space for women's stories, for stories on girls. And I wanted a second look, a third look, a fourth look, if possible, you know? Um, I wanted people to see things that they weren't necessarily seeing. I wanted to dig for myself. I actually wanted to do original reporting, which I couldn't do because I had a full-time job. Once I left that full-time job, in um, March 2020, <laughs> I wanted to do my original story on something that was pretty good. Um, there was a pandemic. <laughs> so um, I had the time, but now I couldn't go anywhere. So um, the point is, I give a damn, I give a shit. 
And that's kind of what the website shows. I give a shit and I think you should give a shit too about these stories. Um, So since September, 2018, I was posting like, I don't know, three stories a week or something like that. And I had a full-time job. And then it's, it's very um, overwhelming. It's very, it's a lot of work. Um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And it really was just supposed to be like this little, website that my friends could go to, to see stories that they probably would have had to dig in order to see. Um, And it became something else. And, um, you know, it's given me a voice. I feel like it's given these stories um, another chance um, at being looked at, thought about, cared about. Um, It is changing though. There is gonna be some major changes to the Realist Woman website. you know, when I chose my theme, my little news ticker um, and the colors and everything, you know, that was great for, you know, when I chose it. But, you know, you have to, um, you know, update, you know, websites and you have to kind of, I just, I feel like I need a refresher and the realest woman is kind of changing. Not that it's, I'm not going to have written stories anymore, but this is a different generation that doesn't want to sit really and read. They want to watch you. They want to have a relationship with you. They want to get to know you. So that forces me to be a presence now on social media. Um, And I have to say, I've gotten great feedback. You know, people like hearing my voice. They like hearing the inflection in my voice. They like hearing my tone. Um, I am authoritative in what I'm talking about because I know what I'm talking about. And... I've had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, I think that's what the whole last two years has been about. Um, So it is becoming more video based and the newer refreshing (laughs) refresher website will kind of show that a little bit more. I do have a YouTube channel, um, the Realist Woman's YouTube channel. Um, It's the same videos you can see on my website, but basically, I'm just trying to figure out what to do with both at this point, because I did not go to school for (laughs) web development and, (laughs) you know, uh, to have a presence on social media. Like I didn't have any training. I didn't like, so it's, it's like, I'm starting over again. Um, I love writing the stories that I've written. Um, There's one that I really love and I'm kind of bringing it back in video form, but in two minutes or less about, um, you know, there's a story called It's That Time of Year Again. And it was basically me a couple years ago watching Veronica Mars. <laughs> and um, the third season of that show, the third and last, well, when it first came out that season, um, was about a rape on the college campus. And what I ended up finding out was how... Um, um, regularly, um, rapes happen on college campuses. I wasn't very, I wasn't really aware. And it was something like 20%. I hope I'm not getting this statistic wrong because this was years ago after we look it up, but it was something like 20% of freshmen women in the first semester will be raped. Um, and I know with the pandemic, kids are back at school. They're back on campus. I don't know that there's going to be many parties like there used. I mean, I'm sure there'll be plenty, but maybe not as many as there would usually be without a pandemic. I don't know. Not sure. But there was a rape 
um, in the news. Um, I forgot which school. Um, damn it, I should have. I didn't think I was going to be talking about this, but there was a rape. I want to say two, three weeks ago, um, at a fraternity house, and um, fraternities are also one of the more, I don't know, regular places women get raped at um, on college campuses. Um, it's really guys in fraternities and athletes, even though they represent a very small percentage of the school. Um, and they're protected by the schools. And that goes into a whole other conversation about, um, I think it's called like Title Nine, And it, it, I mean, there's just, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But basically, um, I'm going to kind of bring that story back because it's that time of year again when rapes on college campuses will happen and one has already happened and I mean that was in August so um it's just these kinds of stories really need attention um the schools usually protect the perpetrator um we definitely had that with Betsy DeVos at the head of our uh department of education she was definitely on the side of protecting the perpetrators and um, yeah, um, it's disgusting. It's scary. Um, you know, people send their kids off to school to get an education, to have a college experience. They don't send them off to school to be violated. And um, it's just a really scary statistic. Like the first semester, boom, this is going to happen to a certain percentage of women. Like it's, it's, I, it's just unbelievable. I tried to look it up really quick and I didn't yeah. see the stat for freshman women but it's 19 to 27 percent of college women will be sexually assaulted at some point during their time in college and yeah. six six to eight percent of men so it's not you know yes absolutely. it's not it's not like something that just like doesn't happen to one side of the equation but more often than not the sexual assaults on men are being committed by other men so 100 there was a documentary. I don't know if you remember, maybe like a few years ago, I think it was called The Hunting Ground. Hmm. And it was um, this documentary based on this particular subject. And yes, um, I believe there were um, young men who were interviewed. Um, they were survivors of rape on a college campus. And it just showed that, you know, these schools have so much to protect in terms of the alumni money that comes in, you know, um, all of the games, all of the football games, all the basketball games, you know, they don't want to be known as the rape school, you know, so they really right. try to quiet the, the, you know, the survivor, they try to quiet the survivor and they protect the perpetrator. And they try to keep the story as quiet as possible because no one wants to send their kid and spend thousands and thousands of dollars or get thousands and thousands of dollars of loans at a rape school. So. Yeah, that's not on the recruitment package. Like, no. <laughs> so, so no. yeah, just to let you know, one out of four of you is going to be raped at some point uh, during your time here. Like, right. that's horrible. It's horrible. And actually, I just pulled up the story. It's... Um, Nebraska, University of Nebraska fraternity. And they had a history of sexual harassment. They were suspended over an alleged rape. Um, rape of a teen. So they um, knew it the the dean or the the office of admissions, like they knew it was coming and they just 
prolonged it for as long as they could. And it had probably happened before and they were able to bury it. That's right. This time it just got out. That's right. Yep. It's, I mean, uh, again, these are things that happen every single year. So why don't we get ahead of it? (laughs) You know, like, why don't we get ahead of this stuff? You know, like you just, and I understand the power of fraternities, you know, they're very, very powerful. Um, It's a very powerful system. They have, you know, very powerful alumni, you know, they have, very powerful legacies. They have, um, you know, I, I get it, sort of. But this wrong is wrong. And you would think that a school would want to protect their students. All but of their it always, it's always profit over people. That is Amer- America's God. I can't talk about any other country because I don't live there. But America's God is money. It is not Jesus. Okay. It is never Jesus. It's never been Jesus, it's always been money, profit over people, always. That's how our school systems run. That's how our politics runs. I mean, it is, I mean, that's our healthcare system. I mean, that is who we are. It's profit over people. No one cares about your reproductive rights. No one cares about your kid getting raped at school. No one cares about you needing health insurance because you have cancer. No, no, it is profit over people. Know your place. That's America. And for anybody that's interested, that's the realistwoman.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'll put up the link to your YouTube page, to the website. Yeah. I'll put that up in the Thanks. notes for the episode. Um, yeah. And anybody that's listening that wants to check out the realist woman, uh, take a look now and it's gonna get overhauled and it'll be a more yeah. video friendly blog. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, like when we when we were going to school, um, like we were right at like the edge of like the social media revolution. It's like, we were still being trained for like typical print journalism, broadcast journalism, but now everything is very like clickbaity. Like we were talking about earlier with like inflammatory headlines that want to like get you angry to get you click on the story. And then you read it and you're like, this isn't even what the headline said it was. So I actually commend you and I appreciate you stepping back from the kind of like, unnatural timeliness of that style of reporting because everyone's rushing to be first to get the clicks and then there's a ton of erroneous reporting a ton of like spelling errors when i read something and i'm like my goodness like these people are working for professional news outlets and like i'm catching multiple errors here which means that they don't have an editor that's doing their job or they don't have an editor so it's like they're responsible for editing their own work so it's like the whole business has changed and, you know, I appreciate you bringing some traditionalist journalism back to the table. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying. And I also kind of am going to be moving towards, not away from news, but I'm definitely going to be doing a lot more, um, yes, articles, but videos on, um, you know, on topics involving mental um, wellness, because, um, you know, 2020 um, and even it's 2021, um, there's been some beautiful moments for me personally, but there's been probably some of the shittiest things have happened um, between 2020 and 2021. And I was holding on by a thread and I found this group and, 
And um, it was basically like a, like a kind of like a group therapy and it's changed my life. And so now I'm connected. This little Jesus girl is meditating. <laughs> um, I'm into mindfulness. Um, I'm possibly going to be working in that field. Um, and I want to have my blog not only be um, stories, getting women a voice, but I want to talk about um, what we go through and how we can come through it, you know, and how to get connected with ourselves. And um, yeah, so that's that's going to be part of the realist woman too. It's it's going to get a little bit more personal because what I ended up finding out was I'm kind of my brand. <laughs> Yeah, you have to be. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to come to that. I wasn't really comfortable with that, but it is what it is. And it's evolving into what it's evolving to. And I want to talk about those things because they're important and they mean everything to me. And I want to help as many people as possible. I did a little thing. Um, I submitted a little article on Thrive Global, and it was about how your triggers are your problem and my triggers are my problem. And I don't want to do more of that. So um, that'll be coming to the realist woman as well. So if you're into that, it's happening. Of course. And thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's congrats. Nice, this nice is to see very, you talk to you. <laughs> very easy. It's like a very easy conversation. You know, this is cool. That's I didn't know we were doing this. <laughs> All right. So I, I've had a website for like four years, right? I do movie reviews, mm. sport, sports stuff, you know, just. Candyman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I want to see Candyman. that. <laughs> Go see Candyman. It's interesting. I mean, if you if you grew up with like the original Candyman back in the 90s, then like I, there's more connective tissue there than I expected there to be. So I really, I really like that. And okay. Nia DaCosta is a good filmmaker. So I'm excited to see what she does next. Um, but yeah, like I, I started mostly doing movie reviews because I want to say at least seven, eight years ago, like I had some friends and they were like, we wanted to do like a podcast. Right. And that was the initial idea. And then I was like, wow, well, there's like, it never happened. And then I started writing for a friend's website and I was like, you know what? Like I miss writing so much. I still love it. It's still like what I probably do best. So I really wanted to like make that space, like what I wanted to talk about. Cause I'd say my specialty is mostly like low budget, like indie films that I think are things that people should see that don't get talked about enough. So I want to promote that kind of stuff as much as possible, but I also see Marvel movies and Candyman and like all the popular stuff that's coming out. So it's trying to balance those two. Then I started mm -hmm. writing about sports and stuff. And then mm -hmm. 2020 came along and I was like, well, I've got more time on my hands than I anticipated. So like, okay, like how do I make a podcast? Like what kind of equipment do I need? What kind of editing software do I need? Um, like, how do I use the editing software once I have it? I mean, it's been forever since like I used Pro Tools or anything. Or I think I used Avid a little bit um, when I was mm -hmm. interning, but you know, it's a decade ago. So it was like you said, yeah. a, a learning curve almost like from scratch again. But I wanted this to be a space where I get to talk to people that are passionate about what they do, who are my friends, at least for now. <laughs> like, let's start with the circle that I know. And we'll see. From there. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine I'll talk to someone that's not my friend at some point. But like, in order to get someone to come on the show, like, I want to have like a good relationship with that person. So you know, I figured yeah. I'd reach out to you because I've been following what you've been doing for the last like year and some change. And I thought you would be a good fit. And I was right. So thank you for coming on and doing this. Awesome. Thank you so much. 
I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This show is an extension of thescheiss.com. And if you're enjoying it, you can help me out by liking, subscribing, and sharing from wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, be well, stay safe, and make sure to vote.